Uh, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us together this morning and we pray now as we reflect on your word that your spirit would give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is you're saying to us, your church. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, always a challenge, isn't it, when you come to such a familiar passage in the scriptures to make it fresh and relevant and sing off the pages in new ways. So we'll see if I pass or fail uh, on that. But uh, as we think today about this story, uh, I wonder if you know the story of J.K. Rowling. You might have heard of her. Uh, she's a little bit famous uh, because she's one of the most richest and successful authors in the world. But uh, prior to that, she was actually a welfare-dependent single mother who had had this book she was writing about a funny little wizard called Harry Potter, rejected by all 12 major publishing houses in the UK. And yet somehow she kept persevering and uh, we know now she's a, I think she's a multi-millionaire, if not billionaire. Or you might have heard of this other bloke called Thomas Edison. He's in famous for inventing the light bulb, but did you know it took him more than 10,000 attempts before he finally succeeded in making a light bulb that could become commercially viable? And when a journalist once asked him about his failure, he said this, I have not failed 10,000 times, I have not failed once. I have succeeded in proving that those 10,000 ways will not work. And when I have eliminated all the ways that will not work, I will find the way that will work. It's a fairly kind of uh, bold and resilient claim. And uh, there's you know, lots of stories of famous people who've persevered under, under trial and, and succeeded. But all of us also know people in our own lives who have seemed to have to, uh, even if it's not persevere to great success so that we can tell their stories uh, from afar, we know people who just, we, we look at them and we think, just the very act of you getting up today, <laughs> you know, is good. You've done a good job. Life seems to have thrown you curveball after curveball, uh, difficulty after difficulty, and yet somehow you're still soldiering on. Now, whether it's J.K. Rowling or Thomas Edison or uh, that friend or family member you know who soldiers on, I, I think a good word to describe these kind of people is resilient, isn't it? That they keep on going in the tough times. In fact, the American Psychological Association defines resilience as the process of adapting well in the face of adversity, trauma, tragedy, threats, or even significant sources of stress. That seems to define single mothers on welfare or uh, failed inventors or uh, people just dealing with the difficulties of everyday life. And as we've worked our way through Daniel over the last uh, five or six weeks, we've seen that Daniel and his friend Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego have also proved to be a fairly resilient bunch. In chapter one, their, their homeland, the, the city where they've grown up, the city that they love, Jerusalem, has been captured and they've been carried off into exile. And we saw how they've, that they had to kind of uh, navigate their way through that process and, uh, and navigate their way through staying faithful to God in a, in a foreign land. In chapter three, 
We saw uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego again having to navigate faithfulness to God uh, when they were being called to, to worship of idol. Uh, and they had to maintain faithfulness in the, in the face of the threat of death being thrown into the fiery furnace. In chapter 5, we saw uh, again uh, the city in which they've now managed to re-establish themselves uh, and, and have some sort of level of, of success uh, fall to another conqueror and they've had to navigate that as well as the death of a king. Uh, and now in today's story uh, that we, we heard read to us, Daniel in the lion's den, we see again Daniel having to navigate his way through a difficult season. We know that Babylon, the place where Daniel has found himself since his exile from Jerusalem, uh, has now fallen to the Medes. That happened last week in chapter 5. Uh, God brought judgment upon the arrogant King Belshazzar and now there's this new king in town, King Darius. He's running the show, we read, and in verse 1 we see that he decides that this growing kingdom that he's building as he conquers uh, requires, he requires some sort of middle management and upper level management underneath him. So he appoints the satraps, 120 of them, and these three administrators who are to manage them in their uh, doing of the duties. And one of those kind of top level managers uh, is Daniel. If Darius is the CEO, Daniel is like the, the CFO or something like that. Daniel here, uh, again, proves his kind of remarkable character uh, as well as the way God has continued to, to, to work in his life. He's survived uh, another siege on his city where he theoretically has just been made third in charge, remember, like the writing was on the wall, the finger of God's come down, he's been given the purple robe and then the city's been conquered and somehow he survived that and now manages to find himself under this new conquered kingdom, again rising to the top. We don't know how that happened, but it's just a, a little kind of remarkable side point. And as we've come to expect, Daniel is uh, good at his job. Perhaps that's how this has happened. Verse 3, Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. He's impressed with his abilities yet again. And yet again, uh, Daniel's rivals uh, are out to get him. And of course, there's a lot of parallels in this story, aren't there, with what happened to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in chapter 3. Remember, uh, they were set out to be got by their rivals. So too is Daniel. But of course, uh, uh, we get a bit of a different story because uh, where they found the dirt straight away oh, they're not following your decrees, these guys try first to, to play the man. Let's find some sort of thing that looks a bit questionable in Daniel's life and see if we can kind of crucify him for it. So in verse 4, we read at, at this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs. They, they're on a political witch hunt where they're looking to see if he's done something that they can sort of use against him. 
I mean, we see this all the time in politics, don't we, where people uh, try and uh, bring others, the other side down, not necessarily over the issue, but over uh, uh, the character of uh, the people. So we've got, uh, uh, currently in Victoria, these calls of their Premier as Dictator Dan, um, which, uh, you know, is a, is a way of trying to bring, bring down the man and, and kind of abs- not necessarily allow us to look at the issues. Or you might remember back when the bushfires were on, lest you think I'm being political, uh, we had Scotty from Marketing, uh, who was uh, running the country and, you know, uh, knew how to do, make, a, make an ad but didn't know how to... Um, uh, operate in a crisis or something like that. These kind of terms that they they take little bits and they kind of build it up into something to try and take the opposition down. And that's what Daniel's opponents do, but they're unable to do so, we read in verse 4, because they could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. I guess you might say, uh, to use the language of Paul in 1 Timothy 3, that, uh, that Daniel is found to be above reproach. Uh, they can't get him. And so when they fail at that strategy, trying to kind of play the man and, and, and prove him wrong on something that maybe a you know, shifty deal, favours for a mate, when that doesn't work, they come up with a new strategy. We're actually going to use his integrity against him, they say. And... They know he's a man of prayer, uh, a man who worships God. And so they go to the king in verses 6 to 9 to convince him to make this unchangeable law that the only God who can be worshipped is the king himself. And I mean, it's, it's perfectly designed purely and simply to get Daniel's. It's only for 30 days. It's not the institution of a new religion for all time. Just for 30 days, just long enough for us to go, see Daniel, catch him in the act uh, and get him killed so he doesn't become, uh, doesn't take our spot and become number two in the kingdom. And Daniel hears about the decree in verse 10 and he reacts as we would expect. Let me read verse 10 to you. Daniel learned that the decree had been published He went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. Oh, there's a new rule in town that says I can't worship God. Oh well. He keeps praying. And his rivals knew that would happen. And so in verse 11, they go and they catch him in the act. And in verse 13, they go to the king and they say, Daniel! One of those exiles from Judah, he pays no attention to you, king. He doesn't uh, listen to the decrees you put in writing. He's still praying three times a day to his own God, not to you. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because it's like at this moment, the king kind of realises that he's been got. Because he's distressed. Remember, he likes Daniel. Verse 3, back in verse 3, he wanted to make Daniel number two in the kingdom. And so we read how he works till the end of the day to try and avoid this occurring. He, he doesn't want this guy whom he likes, who is good at his job, to be thrown to the lions. But the political pressure is hot. And they pressure the king, hey, you made this rule, it, you know, it can't be changed, come on, let's do it. And in verse 15, uh, uh, the, the pressure becomes too much. 
so that Daniel in verse 16 is thrown in the lion's den on order of the king. The king gave the order and they brought Daniel and threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may, you, may your God whom you serve continually rescue you. Again, we see the king's deep desire for things not to be going the way they're going, but being kind of trapped in a mess of his own making. And of course, after the king gives that order, if you've spent any time in church as a child, you'll know what happens next. Uh, Daniel is uh, locked in the lion's den in verses 16 and 17. The king spends an anxious night worrying uh, and wondering whether maybe his words in verse 16 would come true, that the God whom Daniel serves would rescue him. And the next day he wakes up, verses 19 and 20, he goes to check on Daniel and to his great delight as he calls out, Daniel responds, may the king live forever, verse 21. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. God rescues and vindicates Daniel. And Darius is both pleased and mad. Pleased in verse 23, overjoyed because uh, God has saved Daniel as he had hoped he would. And mad, 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 mad at these people who played this political game for their own benefit. Verse 24, we read about how he's enraged with them and he decrees that they be thrown to those very lions. And then Darius turns to God to praise him and to issue a different decree from the worship of himself to the fear and reverence of the God of Daniel. I issue a decree that in every part of my kingdom, King Darius says, people must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. God is alive, he says. He will not pass away. He will not be defeated. His kingdom will never end. He is powerful. He will achieve the outcomes he wishes to achieve however he wishes to achieve them. That is the message that must ring loudly through the captured Babylon. And Daniel goes on, we read in verse 28, to live a relatively good life during the rest of the king and the king after his reign. Now, apart from being a good story for craft, what do we actually learn about God, about ourselves, uh, from Daniel in the lion's den? Well, I think the first thing I wanted to, to note comes from thinking about the other story back in chapter three that, that is very similar to this one of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the furnace. When you read the story, you, you can't help but notice, can you, that, that there, there's lots of similarities. Remaining faith, God's people remaining faithful to him under great pressure, the, the threat of death actually being attempted to be killed, but God intervening and, and, and them being saved. And as one commentator, a guy called Bob Fial, uh, uh, reflects on this, 
uh, and reflects on the similarities, he says this. It is, it is a necessary reminder, chapter 6, having come after chapter 3, it is a necessary reminder that the life of faith must be lived to the very end and that earlier victories and rescues cannot be taken as guarantees of absence of future crises. Do you hear that? Just because you've triumphed over something in the past with God, just because he delivered you from your enemies once before, doesn't mean that you're on a trajectory to a, a, a happy and easy life for all time. Uh, Daniel is a great example of that, isn't it? That, that being a worshipper of God uh, results for him in constant challenge. He's got to daily get up and decide uh, the habits that he's going to have as, 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 a, as a person who worships God and there is challenge after challenge, be it an enemy outside the gates of the city or a king in the city in which he lives bringing pressure upon him about who he should serve. And just because he gets delivered once when he decides not to eat vegetables doesn't mean that he's set up for life. Just because his friends get delivered from a fiery furnace doesn't mean uh, everyone's going to now get on the God train and they're going to be set up for life. The life of faith is uh, uh, one of constant trust in God and when he comes through for you, it it doesn't mean you're not going to have to trust him extravagantly again. Or it doesn't mean that just because you've had a time of challenge, that's going to set you up for life and you, you won't have another time of challenge, that somehow you've, you've done your time in the suffering and now you get to glory. You will get to glory, but not in this life. And so if that's the case, then I think what we actually see across all these chapters, and particularly here uh, at, the, in, at this final story of, of, of Daniel's life, as we, we kind of leave it here and, and move into a, a period of dreams in the rest of the book, is that we, we need to be like Daniel in, in that we need to have a resilient faith, a faith that is going to stand strong when tested. And I guess the question is, well, how do we do that? How do you survive the tough times that will come? And I think what we see with Daniel is the answer is that you, you grow it through habitual practice, especially during the good times. You see, what is Daniel's usual practice? We see it, don't we, after the decree is made back in verse 10. Have a look. Now, when Daniel learned that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened towards Jerusalem. Three times a day he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God just as he had done before. And I think those last sort of four or five words there are the key. Just as he had done before, like yesterday, and the day before that, and the day before that. He's built up this regular habit of daily prayer. And so often we can read these wonderful stories of Daniel's remarkable faith and, 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 and think, oh, I hope that would be me in, in the moment. I, I hope that I could be like Daniel. 
And of course, if, you, if, you, if you've got any hope, the question is to ask yourself is, well, what are you doing today when the pressure's not on? What habits are you developing today that will give you the resilience in the tough times? You see, the Bible tells us that we need to train ourselves if we want our faith to be strong. And the, the Bible actually commands us to, to, to be devoted to some habits that uh, will grow our faith and sustain us through difficulty. Paul in Colossians 4 calls us to be devoted to prayer. Colossians 4 verse 2. In 1 Timothy 4 verse 13, he calls us to be devoted to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching and to teaching. In Hebrews 10.25, the writer there uh, calls us to be devoted to meeting together. These practices are described as things that as Christians we're called to do constantly and fervently. And in the book of James, uh, James tells us that trials are going to strengthen our faith. He says in chapter 1 that when we face trials, we know that, our faith, that this testing of our faith will produce perseverance and that that perseverance will, lead, will, will ultimately end us in verse 12 uh, to receiving the crown of life, the glory we so desperately desire. You see, Daniel's crown and glory is not stay, staying faithful in the face of the lions. It comes... When having been faithful, he meets Jesus in eternity. So how do we do it? How do we have this resilient faith? How do we be devoted to these things? Well, I wanted to just show you a book that I've found quite helpful in this regard. It's called Habits of Grace. You can come and have a look at it at the end of the service. I'll zoom it in for the camera at home. There you go. Yeah. Uh, by a guy called David Mathis, M-A-T-H-I-S. He basically says that God has promised to sustain his people through a variety of means. And funnily enough, he, he puts them into three large categories. Hearing his voice, sounds a little bit like what Paul said in 1 Timothy 4.13, doesn't it? Being devoted to the scriptures. Having his ear... Sounds a bit like Colossians 4.2, being devoted to prayer and belonging to his body. Sounds a bit like Hebrews 10.25, don't give up meeting together. Uh, And he says this, uh, I'll just read you this little quote about putting yourself in the path of God's grace so that you can be sustained to live out your faith in the day-to-day happenings of life, including the challenging times, like being thrown in a lion's den. He says... I can flip a switch, but I don't provide the electricity. I can turn on a tap, but I don't make the water flow. There will be no light and no liquid refreshment without someone else providing it. And so it is for the Christian, with the ongoing grace of God. His grace is essential for our spiritual lives, but we don't control the supply. We can't make the favour of God flow, but he has given us the circuits to connect and pipes to pen at pipes to open expectantly. They are paths along which he has promised his favour. 
See, it is only by the grace of God that we can remain strong and steadfast in our faith. That was the same for Daniel too. I don't think it's because Daniel's some sort of remarkable person that he went and prayed. I think he went and prayed because he knew that he was going to meet the grace of God in prayer. If we're inspired by Daniel's story, don't be inspired by him standing there in front of uh, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, sorry, Darius, and saying, you know, I'm not going to worship you. Be inspired by three times a day on his knees in his room, day after day after day after day. Because if we want to be like Daniel in the tough times, in the big times, in the heroic times, we need to be full of the grace of God. And God has promised through his word, through prayer, through the gathering with his people, that he will fill us with his grace. Not in some sort of transactional way. He's just like, this is how it flows, people. Come and stand under the tap. When we look at people like Daniel, we ought to be inspired to greater faithfulness. The writer of the Hebrews later on uh, says the same thing. He, he lists off in chapter 11 all these great heroes of the faith and we might include Daniel in it. And then in chapter 12, he says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. As we seek to position ourselves in the grace of God, we do so with eyes fixed on Christ. We do so seeking God's empowerment daily, so that we might stand firm in our worship of him, regardless what the world might throw at it, be it the fear of lions or the lure of riches. We stand firm by looking at Jesus, devoting ourselves to him through word, prayer and fellowship, habits which God has promised to pour out his grace generously in.